rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to episode number 37 of Rumors of Grace. As always, Bob Hutchins here. And today, we have a very special guest, as always, a very good friend of mine sitting across the table from me in the studio here in Franklin, Tennessee, is Mr. Bobby Downs. Bobby has a very fascinating background, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things today. Uh, We're going to go down a lot of different rabbit holes, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Born in Visalia, California, uh, Bobby was... uh, Brought up in Southern, and not it's not Southern California, is it, Bobby? It's about 200 miles north of uh, L.A., is that correct? Hey. What would you consider it? Yeah, uh, it's, it's considered Southern California, but it's it's like right in the middle of the state. Okay, yeah. so middle, mid-California. Um, in his young days, he uh, went through school, went to college. Uh, you, you have a degree, a uh, bachelor's and master's in agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then you became a missionary for some, and to like 20 different countries in the arts, singing, et cetera. Uh, from there, you started your career and you got into to making films and movies, um, some of which people may be familiar with. Uh, one of your biggest successes uh, when it comes to film was like that, like Dandelion Dust, mm-hmm. Um Based off of a Karen Kingsbury novel. That's correct. That's correct. For those of you who may be familiar with that. And so in the faith-based sector, uh, you went on from there. And one of your, your, apart from all the films you've done, Bobby, one of the things that that caught my eye, knowing you and talking about it, was from 2006 through the end of 2008, uh, you helped finance, develop the branding, collaborated on the writing and uh, was was essential to bringing the number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Shack, to publication through its first million books sold. Um, so you then worked with them to to organize a deal with Hachette Publishing. Uh, the book sold more than 20 million copies. We know about the film. Um, and William Paul Young has been very influential in many people's lives, including my own, as people who have... Uh, have come to a point where we're rethinking our journey, looking at different constructs of faith, et cetera. So that's a great segue into introducing Bobby Downs. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. Glad you're here. So so who is Bobby Downs? Let's go back to the very beginning, many, many moons ago. Uh, Born and raised in Visalia. Was that, uh, you, you know, you... You go into this agriculture thing, which I think we'll talk about uh, and how that all has come full circle, but was it a farm? Would you grow up on a farm or? Yeah, good question. I, um, it's, it is funny when I tell people about you know, my journey and um, that I have a, a master's in agricultural science, they raise an eyebrow because they don't expect that answer. I think <laughs> I would have a background in film or what have you, but my... Um, my parents, uh, my, I have about seven agriculture teachers in my family. And uh, so it was a natural thing for me to do. I was in Future Farmers of America in high mm. school. Um, that's was, what, that, was that like Napoleon Dynamite, that scene from Napoleon? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were the guy that was saying, oh, what did this uh, cow get into? <laughs> yes. And that was where really uh, my leadership development skills came from the FFA. And... Um, 
the activities in high school were drama and band and all those extracurricular activities and thing people don't realize also for me um, I was diagnosed in university with a, um, a learning disability. I don't call it a disability. It's actually my superpower, and it's a form of uh, dyslexia that has to do with uh, cognitive uh, re- retainment. Hmm. And so uh, there's been a lot of studies since the 1980s on that, that topic. Um, people like uh, Richard Branson, uh, Steve Jobs, Einstein all had the same condition. And isn't it interesting, a lot of the entrepreneurs and, and innovators in the country uh, are dyslexic. You didn't, you said it wasn't diagnosed until university? Mm-hmm. So wow. I struggled through school, uh, elementary school and high school, and I ended up taking what they would call bonehead math, bonehead English uh, yeah. in school. Easy math. Easy mm-hmm. math. And uh, never took a foreign language, never took chemistry, never took any of those things in, in high school. I, mm. I took band and auto and agriculture and uh, all of the very vocational. And it's interesting. I look back now and go, did they track me like on that? Like there was no discussion with me about that. It's just where I got ended up getting filtered towards. Did you, what was that like growing up? Did you feel like, oh, I, I'm the kid that can't keep up or I'm not as smart as other kids or did you not have any awareness? I had limited to no awareness. I knew that all my friends were in advanced AP types of classes and languages and they would speak French to each other or Spanish and whatever. And I felt a little bit left out, but I was really more interested in the doing around sports and band and drama. And I, that was a thrill to me. I loved Mm it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really didn't affect my self-image. And what's another tangential piece to, to my growing up is my parents were in a multi-level business called Amway. Mm. And so we were always going to see Zig Ziglar speak or Dennis Waitley, some of these, you know, positive thought leaders around the time in the 1980s, late 1970s. And, um, I didn't follow my parents in, in their, their, their footsteps, but that did during that formational season of my life had an impact because I was reading, you know, see you at the top by Zig Mm. Ziglar. And when I was in seventh and eighth grade, Wow. I mean, what seventh and eighth grader does that? Yeah, I was going to say, when you said uh, parents, you were brought up in that, that type of environment, I've had so many people, friends, et cetera, that, have, that grew up in that and parents were in it and it was a negative thing. But for you, it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. It, well, it, it was when I didn't necessarily follow in the footsteps. It, there's a little bit of pressure, that right. kind of thing, and which told me that it wasn't the path, path for me. Right. You know, anytime there's pressure on you to, to do something, that should be an uh, alarm bell should, should go off. Mm. And uh, I was aware of that at a, a young age. And so, but I did, uh, and I was grateful for the impact that um, that kind of thinking had because nothing was impossible to me. Everything mm. was possible. Wow. And that's, I still be, believe that today. Right. And I, think and I, and I know you principle. and that I can see now it, those puzzles start to come together to say those formative years when your brain was still growing and form, you know, forming and you were making those neural connections and life connections and thought connections um, to have that influence. What a, what a beautiful thing. And my parents weren't people of faith per se. They, mm-hmm. they didn't, we didn't go to church. I wasn't raised in church. In fact, I didn't know the name of Jesus until I was 16 year old. 16 years old and a a group of friends from choir, again, another vocational thing I did in high school, took me to a Michael W. Smith concert in Mm. Fresno, California. It was during the Friends Tour in 1985. And I was like, he shared enough of the gospel message that I was like, how come no one's ever told me about this? I'm 16. I, I was like, 
whoa, I'm in, I'm all in. Like so in that I was like, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a missionary from that point forward. I, I'm all in. And um, so I even, I even um, began to look at, um, I was in university for my, my agricultural degree, but I was contemplating going on either the mission field or becoming a pastor after getting my agriculture degree. Mm. So much so, I even looked at um, a master's college, John MacArthur's, and that's how far right I was, Wow, was John MacArthur. But back then, um, and I remember, because you and I are, are similar ages, is that uh, that brand of evangelicalism in the mid-80s was kind of the place where a lot of things were happening. It hasn't evolved the past 30 years. It looks very different, and those that are still in that camp, um, you know. So so it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like extreme far right at the time. No. In fact, um, Christian music was a right. very big part of my formation as well. Amy Grant, Kathy Tricoli, you know, uh, Billy Sprague, uh, Morgan Cryer, like these names that uh, now that I live in Franklin, right. I think they all live here, right? Right, right. You've come and home. You've come home. <laughs> and um, I just think that um, it was just kind of normal Christianity at the time. There right. wasn't a sense of this uh, these uh, the splintering or right. the, the diverseness. So how did you go from 16 years old, all in at a Michael W. Smith concert, to um, then a couple of years later, you're off to getting your bachelor's and master's in agriculture. I'm sorry, what is Agriculture that? science. Agriculture science. Yeah. Um, and then becoming a missionary. Talk to me that transition from 16 to missionary. Yeah, so um, I met my wife in 1992, and uh, we were married in 1993. And this was during my uh, master's um, studies. That Right at the end, I was um, getting my teaching credential, doing my student teaching in the Central Valley of California. Uh, and again, student teacher as an agriculture teacher at, a high, at the high school level. Mm-hmm. And so, and I wasn't really enjoying that process, but people had told me it's going to be really tough. Give it three years. You know, you don't want these, this whole time of your education to go to waste just by a, a you know, you just decided you're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. So I gave it three years and um, was pretty miserable through the, mm. the three years. And so um, um, when I had met my wife, she was a part of a group out of Visalia, California called the Celebrant Singers. Mm-hmm. Had to say, had to enunciate celebrant because some people say, is it celibate? <laughs> yeah, and it's not celebrate, it's B R A N as in Nancy T, right? Celebrant. Yes. yes. And um, uh, that was very form, forming, life forming for me as well. Um, I didn't, I knew enough about singing and choir and music and to read notes. I was in band, so I could understand that and I could hold a tune in a bucket, but I wasn't necessarily a soloist. Whereas my wife, um, she was one of their ringers. Like she was on the recordings. She, mm-hmm. she could sing. She's beautiful. Um, and so we, she needed some time off of the road. She had traveled for six years on the road prior to me meeting her. And then she came off of the road, needed a season of rest. I was teaching during that three-year period. At a high school? At a high school in uh, Chowchilla, California. Mm-hmm. You remember where the bus was buried in Chowchilla with the kids in it? That yes. town out in the middle oh, of wow. nowhere. <laughs> That's its claim to fame. Wow. And so, um, sadly. So uh, we did that. Then I actually um, accepted another teaching position after my first year there up in Linden, California, just near Stockton. It's uh, the cherry capital. 
And it was during that time that uh, the president and founder of the Celebrant Singers gave us a call and said, really, they wanted to, he wanted to talk to Lane, my wife, and say, would you come back on the road? And she goes like, I'm married. Like, no. And he goes like, would you? And she goes, he goes, uh, you're married. What does he do? And, and uh, so it started from there, which was we had these conversations. And I imagined myself going on the mission field, but not in music. I like right. that doesn't agriculture to music. I thought I would be an agricultural missionary. Mm-hmm. So we, um, we start practicing to, she helped me audition for the mm. Celebrant Singers just for a summer stint. Now, did you sing before that time? Just in choir in high school. Right. And in college, I took a, a, a choir class okay. and a piano class. So, so you, could, you could carry a tune. Enough. Yeah. You know, I knew what was in tune and what was out of tune. That's important when you're in a group. Uh, en- enough, enough for uh, your wife to go back. <laughs> for, <laughs> yes. So we went back for a summer in the summer of 1995, mm-hmm. and I loved every single night of it. Mm. I, I kid you not, I probably cried uh, in the middle of those uh, times we were singing because mm. we were sharing what I felt was the good news. Right. And we did that through testimony, through songs, through prayer with people after the concert. And you're going all over the world doing this. All over the world, all every all fifty states, and then we would spend a a, a good portion of time overseas in a, a country doing the same. How thing. was that as a young married couple? Amazing that your your purpose is aligned with each other. You're with each other, but you're also with a group of uh, say twenty five other people. When you're traveling in the United States, we're in a forty foot bus, so you got to keep short accounts with everybody. Yeah, and yeah. With, yeah. You know, everything's just right out there. So mm. we, we loved that season. In fact, when that season of life kind of came to a close, it was a difficult transition mm, because bet. you're just all up in everybody's grill. You're, you're there, mm-hmm. you're living life together. Um, you're resolving conflict as it happens in real time. Um, you're uh, overcoming things together as a group. And then you land back into the quote unquote normal world where people see each other once a week at church and it just did not scratch the itch for us. Yeah, yeah. So that caused us to kind of start looking around at different churches, and, and we church hopped for a while, mm-hmm. and we were told all the time, don't church hop, you yeah, know, that kind exactly. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> don't forsake the assemblings together. Yes. Um, how the, Okay, so then uh, that explains the, the transition. Uh, what did you do when you came back and you were off the road? What were you, did you go back to school teaching? No, so didn't want to go back there. Uh, we landed back in Visalia, California, where I was raised and my parents live, and the headquarters for Celebrant Singers was there. And a lot of former Celebrant Singers ended up landing in Visalia. And so we had a, a built-in uh, network of friends. And we lived in the back house of a friend of ours. Um, she had a, a pool house, a house by their pool. And it's a little 500-square-foot place. And so that's where Lane and I lived when we came off the road. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. I mean, we just did, had nothing. Everything that we owned was in the size of a small carry-on that wow. we could fit above our bin space in the bus. Mm. And that was what we started out with. Mm. And so my brother, Kevin, lived down in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And this is where we began to segue into the film world. He was acting and producing um, in films with David White who later went on to, um, he's an actor and also ended up starting Pure Flix. Mm-hmm. And they, as just young guys, started acting in films um, and they decided to start producing. And it was around 1998, uh, Kevin came home one day and said, I think um, I want to, I think I can make a movie. Mm-hmm. I've seen enough. 
And I said, I think I could help you raise the money because that's what I did as a missionary, mm-hmm. right? To right. build vision for, right. for that. And so we raised about $88,000 in the, that time period and um, learned a lot. Uh, wore, wore about 100 hats on the set, you know, all the different you know, possibilities sure. um, of what you can do on a, on a movie set. Um, and picking up trash to bringing food to photography to you name it, coordinating, right. scheduling, everything. And uh, that was exhausting because I was like, uh, I had no background in film. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And come to realize there's a whole industry that's figured it out, right? right. That's how unknowing I was of film at that time. Mm-hmm. And so we um, made our first film and in six months had 200% of the money back to our investors. Which is really great. I mean, that's not, that's unheard of. And it was, and it was an in times film. So this is 1999, <laughs> right? Remember the, the millennium? Yeah, you were riding the left behind train. Yes. And uh, Matt Crouch had come out with the Omega Code right about mm-hmm. that time too. Mm-hmm. And it did about 10, 11 million dollars at the box office, which was just amazing for a faith-based film at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's really what cracked open the faith yep. market was, yep. was the Omega Code. Right. The eyes were opening. Um, that's when uh, Providence film, Providence Entertainment, which Cindy Bond was a part of, um, and she's still in the business. Um, she was a part of that group. Norm Miller from Interstate Batteries mm-hmm. was the financier behind Providence. And uh, it had a nice little season of life where it was a, a springboard for what was to now mm-hmm. become the Christian film industry. Mm. That's great. And so you, you played in that space for quite a while, but around 99, you started something that you know, has, has, la- has lasted for almost 20 years now. You want to talk about that a yeah. little bit? So we had this one movie called The Moment After, the little end times movie that we made. None of the Christian bookstores would carry it because they didn't carry Christian movies at the time. If they did, it was a, a rack, a VHS rack at the back of the store that you could rent movies. Right. And around that time was when, if you remember, Blockbuster wouldn't sell movies in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to buy one, it, it was, was $100. Yeah, exactly. For a VHS. And then this home entertainment market just exploded onto the scene in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where you could actually buy VHS. So when that happened, uh, we thought, well, let's aggregate all of the Christian movies that have ever been made on VHS. And you have to understand, too, in the Christian market at that time, there was still a big, thriving 16-millimeter film Mm. reel market. (laughs) It's like, so uh, so weird to think about. Isn't it? And so people looked at us like we were crazy with VHS. Like, no, 16 millimeters is going to stay around forever. And those people that hung their hat on that ended up fading right. away. And this isn't it like this. These cycles happen like this. Sure. After VHS, when DVD came, people that hung on to VHS right. didn't make the transition. And the DVD to digital, those that didn't make the transition, they, they died. So... Um, the company was called ChristianCinema.com, and we started out with the one movie called The Moment After, and then we started having filmmaker friends call us and say, can you, you know, carry my movie too? And again, we didn't have any money, so what we did was barter. Um, we, you know, we started asking for greater, deeper discounts. We would advertise you know, for people, mm. had to start figuring out um, Google and advertisement. This is way early. No, there's no Facebook. There's no right. social media. Right. Right. There's just a search engine. Mm-hmm. And there was several competing search engines mm-hmm. at that time, but that was it. Right. Uh, keywords, you know. Alta just, Vista. Alta Vista. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I, I knew enough 
about HTML and web pages, because in the early 1990s, 1992, 90, yeah, it was ni- summer of 1992, I went to Livermore, California, and they have Cray computers mm-hmm. there, the, the big mega, the water-cooled computers there that were the backbone of the internet. Sure. And I went to a summer stint there as a part of my high school teaching. Um, I was really interested in computers uh, as an agriculture teacher. Mm-hmm. And so the business side of agriculture is what you know attracted me there. And so I got to go as a privilege to be there at that workshop, and they showed us how to create a web page. And again, there were no images with HTML at that moment in time. It was just text. Mm-hmm. And it was the where and you could put links on the page. Right. And then, you know, a year later, you could put an image on it and it just starts progressing. Yeah. So that's before I went with Celebrant Singers. Now, fast forward to 1999, 1998-99, I pull that mm-hmm. knowledge out and I create this web page and the domain name christiancinema.com. And we're off to the races with trying to figure out how to do a shopping cart and fulfillment. And we did all of that fulfillment out of that little 500 square foot place that we had. Mm. And then one day uh, the sprinklers got left on outside and all the water came in and flooded everything and all that product that I had on the floors and everything. Oh no! And so we ha- I knew I had to move to a little office space. So we moved Christian Cinema out of our living space into a little 300 square foot office place in Visalia. Mm. From there, in 2001, hired our first employee, and you know we we moved all the way up to 15, 16 employees across the the time the span of Christian Cinema's life, um, and it just continued to grow. We we grew uh, from the one office space into a where square square foot warehouse up near out near UPS at the airport in Visalia, and uh, out in a cornfield, and we were uh, just going mm. um selling movies transitioning to dvd and it was a, an amazing time and uh, all the time all the while making one movie a year with my brother kevin mm. so uh, we did a movie called mercy streets with eric roberts and stacy keach and david white was the lead actor in that film um we did a short film called lay it down we did um you know like dandelion dust another film called faith of our fathers that didn't release ultimately until 2014 in theaters. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes they take a long time. So be- during all this, all this time period, a lot of things are going on. Um, I want to talk about the, the shack involvement here for a second as well, but what's going on? Because I, I, I have observed not only recently, you know, we've shared some time together in our, our shared journeys of, of faith and questioning and, evolution. Um, what's going on inside your, your heart and your mind during this period? It's a great question. In the 1990s, during our time with the Celebrant Singers, we were exposed to Christianity globally. And when that happens... And not just Protestant, because Celebrant Singers was big in Catholic churches absolutely. too. Absolutely. 98% of our work overseas was in the Catholic church. And with arms open wide, we were welcomed in. And participating in the masses, doing this, the music for the masses, uh, uh, audiences for the Pope, uh, Mother Teresa, like we would go around the globe and share the good news. And that does something to a, it's an ecumenical group, and that does something to, to people when your eyes are open that way. Additionally, the, the founder of Celebrant Singers would be, bring in during our summer camp periods where we would retrain and regroup and they would bring in speakers. And so, uh, Ravi Zacharias or uh, Wayne Jacobson, and that's where I met Wayne Jacobson, was at a Celebrant Singer camp. 
And uh, he was ultimately the one that sent me the manuscript for the shack in at the end of 2005, early 2006, just after Paul Young had shared uh, the manuscript with his family at Christmas and wrapped it and thought that would be the end of it. Right. And so uh, I got the Word document for it and we began to read it. And again, I'm a slow reader because of the dyslexia. It took me about two weeks to get through it, but it changed my life. Mm. And Wayne Jacobson's reading, he had a book called The Naked Church in the 1990s that I read and also opened me up. So the cracks were there. It was, mm. it was starting the, I wouldn't call it deconstruction. I, I, I wouldn't have called it anything other than we were expanding as in, in, our, in our faith. Mm. And then, um, so you, you were running Christian cinema, you were making films, you're starting to work on this project, this book project. Uh, what is going on in your family and in your life and everything? I mean, is it just, hey, I'm on top of the world, everything's great, and I'm just pushing forward, or is there, is there other things happening? Well, um, yeah. I mean, we had enough to do. <laughs> so between films and ChristianCinema.com, we had all kinds of things going on. And at the same time, in the background, our faith continued to move. And I told our staff that uh, there's the difference between the business of faith and your personal faith. And I didn't want Christian cinema to be yanked around and reflective of where we were at. It needed to stay the same mm. for a specific audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we evolved, Christian cinema kind of stayed the same. So this is why people couldn't tell where I was. Typically people think, oh, you're your business and the business is you. And when people would begin to find out where I was personally, they're like, wait, you, you run Christian cinema? Mm -hmm. Like how, how are you doing this? And I was like, well, look, um, faith is not static. Mm -hmm. Um, but business is, it needs to be like, who are you serving? And we would try to expand our audience a little bit, but we started finding pushback from people going, why do you have this title on your site? I thought you were Christian. You know, and I want my money back, this kind of thing. And it's like, well, if that doesn't work for business, like we right. got to serve this segment and serve it really well. And knowing that um, the Bible says that God draws all men to himself. Mm-hmm. So if God is truth, then we're constantly being propelled through time towards truth. Mm-hmm. And I have to trust that process that even though people are watching movies on Christian cinema, and we might see a couple of one in there. We, we have a movie called Hellbound that's in the site and it debunks <laughs> hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So um, that's in there, and, and we get people saying, what is this? You know, but we just kind of seed things in there. And I always viewed Christian cinema as the roadway, mm. and the cars is, are the content. Mm. The cars change over time, but the roadway stays the same, right? So it was a platform to, in order to launch ideas, lo- launch filmmakers. And uh, we had filmmakers like that, Alex and Stephen Kendrick, uh, their, their movie Flywheel was on the site before anybody knew about who the Kendrick brothers were. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the Irwin brothers had a, um, a film about um, the two towers in New York. Uh, it was a documentary before October Baby came out. And so we were supporting them. So I always viewed Christian cinema as a launch pad for mm-hmm. young independent filmmakers. And I mm-hmm. still believe that's what its mission is today. And then, uh, so you guys grew it and then you sold it or gave it away or let it go in the past couple of years? Yeah. So in 2013 is when we made the transition to digital and uh, 2014 is when we sold our last DVD uh, and out of the warehouse, cleaned all of that up. And at the time we were operating out of um, San Antonio, Texas, where our um, 
our partner there who was financially helping us uh, fund the, the creation of the digital platform. It was not an off-the-shelf solution. I mean, it was, it's, it was a built-from-the-ground-up solution and uh, cost millions of dollars to create and time. And we finished that project up, and at about that time, he um, was at an age where he's like, look, I'm, I'm transitioning everything over to my, my grown kids, and this is not, entertainment's not a part of their plan. And so he gave me 12 months to look for a new partner. And uh, we t- decided together that the best course of action would be to give it away. I was at a place where my faith had transitioned enough and become disenfranchised enough with the core audience of evangelicalism that um, I had two choices with Christian cinema. One, I could just shut it down and then we'd have all these staff without jobs and work. and they love the mission of Christian cinema, as did I. But I was struggling with the idea of do we continue on and, and more align the content that's on Christian cinema with where most of us are at in the organization, or do we continue to serve and be true to the, the core consumer of evangelicalism that it was serving? And I decided to, to continue to serve, that the organization needed to continue to serve uh, evangelicals. So... Um, we reached out to uh, christianbook.com, who Christian Cinema powers all the movies on christianbook.com. And uh, we, through a mutual friend, connected with um, a gentleman in Georgia and um, had discussions. And we ultimately, bet- between myself and Dr. Leiniger, decided to donate Christian Cinema to a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, and I think this is at the end of 2017, I felt like this idea that if God is truly provider and can resource, then I should have no problem giving it away. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause he's provider and what, you know, no better way than to prove that out in my life than take 20 years of my work and give it away. Mm. You only have one, maybe one shot in a lifetime to be able to of that magnitude, to be able to do something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I did it and I felt great about it. And so that's where it's at now. Christian Cinema is now part of The Giving Company, which is a, a multidimensional company that involves Dove.org, which is a movie review site, iDisciple.org, FamilyChristian.com, and ChristianCinema.com. Mm. And so... Was it hard to let that go uh, because of how many years it kind of was your baby for so long? Yeah, your identity, you don't realize it, but your identity gets meshed up in the work that you do. Mm. Uh, and I feel like, especially as a man, I'm, I couldn't speak to how women feel about this, but as a man, I think our identity does become enmeshed with our work, our function in this world, our title, our label. And that is something I was aware of. And though I was aware of it, it was still painful. Mm. And so did started doing some work, some internal work to get free of uh, the feelings of that to find out where that was coming from. So we, we segue to selling our house in 2018 in San Antonio, Texas. And again, another part of just getting free of every encumbrance, everything that would keep us from just going with the wind wherever the next season of life would take us. And at the time, I was also reading uh, Richard Rohr's Falling Upwards, mm. the Two Halves of Life, mm. and realized that I'm, I'm going to go all in. Yeah, And I don't want the second half of life to be like the first half of life. 
I want it to be different. Sure. Not that the first half of life was bad. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm trying to even get rid of these dualities of good and bad mm-hmm. and up and down and right, or right wrong. and wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't serve me anymore. It doesn't work. And because I know at my core, I am good. And also the other thing that, that changed for me, and again, I will be, these are a couple of sacred cows that I'm tipping here for people. So I apologize, but I realize that God is, is truly good. Like the universe is abundant, that mm-hmm. God is abundant. Mm-hmm. And versus viewing that there's scarcity right and changing to an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset which says there's not enough to go around and i better get mine right whereas when you give something away like christian cinema you're you're staring in the face of scarcity and saying mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. there's enough to go around right i'm going to show it and when that happens it makes room for more just keeps making room for more and don't you think this idea of uh Scarcity and abundance manifests itself in so many ways, and it goes very deep in all of us, especially for those of us who've been brought up in a religious structure that um, many times, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, creates a foundation that's built on scarcity, that's built on shame, that's built on um, the Not wor- enoughness. Yeah, and you can live in these worlds that you create and I see it all the time, and it becomes clear of the world is getting worse. There's not enough goodness in the world. Things are winding down. Um, It will only get worse. Uh, And yet you wake up one day to the realization that everything that happens in the world may not be good, but there is enough goodness in the world and the God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, is perfect love and perfect goodness, that um, it all depends on what perspective you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Because you will see uh, whatever glasses you put on your face. You you were showing me the Oculus VR here in a second. It's like I could walk around for the next day with that thing plugged up thinking I'm in reality, and it feels, my body feels like it's in reality. And your memory will remember it. And my memory will remember it as reality, Mm -hmm. but it it was the farthest thing from reality. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, not, not to riff on that too far, but this idea of scarcity and abundance um, goes, runs very, very deep. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. That the scarcity mindset uh, also puts us in a, a victim mentality where um, our opportunities were taken away from us or our future opportunities could be taken away from us. And so we're interested then in our rights and how I'm entitled to certain things. And this victim mindset, the awareness that you're in victim mindset is the beginning of awakening. Mm. It is also when one is a victim and you have a victim mentality, you end up being stuck in a rhythm that goes on for years. You'll be, you'll, you have either yourself or you'll have friends or family that always bring up that story where they were either hurt or taken from, uh, it was a, maybe a messy divorce or a, uh, a bad business deal that went wrong, and they just keep repeating it over and over. And every time they do, they're repeating that trauma physically in their body. Mm. Their body's re-experiencing that. And that can manifest itself. You may have a great marriage, and you may have a great job, so it may not be what you just described for some people, but it might be, um, well, I'm a person of faith, and the world's out to persecute me. Mm-hmm. That's a victim mentality. That's a like, narrative. That's a narrative that say you will filter everything that anyone says or does. And you see this entertainment business drives me nuts 
Hollywood hates Christians and they're out to persecute Christians. Right. That's a false narrative. It's a false narrative. It just doesn't exist. It's not true. Mm-hmm. And you can sit here and argue to your blue in the face that it is true, but you have to look at the reality. And the facts is that's a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. There are people of faith that you and I both know that live and work at very high levels uh, of the film industry and, and, and working on blockbuster billion-dollar films that practice and live out their faith every day mm-hmm. and that are even directing some of these films. So you can't say that, you know, whatever, it's us against them necessarily. That's just a false narrative. And when I began to see that false narrative, it was also part of my deconstruction deconstruction process. It was a disalignment from what I knew to be true, having worked in Hollywood. Mm. And then I hear the in the heartland of America, this this narrative, which was a false narrative, had no no basis for truth in it. And I'm like, wait a second, this is just victim thinking. Mm. That, that uh, a defensive posture mm. versus offensive posture. And so I think for me, stepping out from and and identifying objectively what this evangelical box was. Look, we had to do that anyway in order to serve the evangelical market. Uh, We had identified what we'd called the Ten Commandments of a Christian movie. And then if you disobeyed (laughs) one of those commandments, you would be punished by the gatekeepers and the the consumers of that group. Right. And so we had had to clearly identify what the boundaries were because then how do you judge which films or discern which films to include in the Christian cinema database? And so it becomes more of a recipe then. And that's where the, the icky side of the business gets when you start thinking about, wow, those movies are manufactured and engineered for audiences. Yes, they are, even the Hollywood movies are engineered. Uh, the scripts and the three-act structure is all sure. engineered for... Hero's journey. <laughs> all of that. Right. And so it's it's going to be no different in Christian film as well, but there are an added layer of nuance when you start talking about, you know, all of these different denominations and now which denomination is the least common denominator that you're going to, you know, where's your core audience? Who are you going to not offend? Mm. Um, you're not going to have... What cuss- brand of Christianity are you marketing? Exactly, mm-hmm. what brand. And and you want to obviously try to to market and build a film to the widest core. But you're going to offend somebody. You're going to end up offending people. And people, in fact, in You're going to be too conservative, you're going to be too liberal. Yeah, in 2001, uh, Mercy Streets, uh, that movie was uh, uh, boycotted by Dallas First Baptist because we had a Moby song <laughs> opening the movie. <laughs> I can't believe that now, but it's just, it just seems right. so ridiculous. But that's boycotting was a big deal in the early, late, you know, in the yeah. 1990s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you, you, one of the things that I admire about you is also one of the things that I still struggle with. And, and let's unpack this for a minute. What I appreciate about you so much is that you have guarded, at least publicly and in my engagement with you, a bitter attitude. Um, you're always trying to transcend and include your journey. This is, you've said, I wanted to continue to serve the evangelical group where they were, even though I wasn't there. And I really, really respect that. And it's something that I struggle with all the time is when you continue to walk on your journey, um, any long journey you go on, you got to take a backpack with you. And you can start to resent that backpack 
and start pulling things out, or you can joyfully take the backpack with you and know that those things are going to serve you along the way and you may need them at some point. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let me flip the coin. The other side is I struggle with how did you reconcile in your brain pushing and benefiting financially and your own um, platform things that you didn't believe necessarily anymore in your life. Mm -hmm. Like that seems like a conundrum and a conflict. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, part of me is like, oh, that's a, that's a beautiful way to look at it. So it's let's kindness. unpack that. So for me, that represents kindness. Mm. And if my religion is anything right now, it's my religion is kindness. It's, mm. I'm, that's what I try to make is the, the aspects or the qualitative nature of my faith are the fruits of the Spirit. Mm. Kindness, peace, joy, um, and patience. Not impatience, but patience. And the um, what I'd un come to understand was, was that what we resist persists, mm. and what we fight, we strengthen. Mm -hmm. And so my having a posture towards my evangelical family and upbringing would have, have been if I chose a fighting posture, a resistive posture, sure. I just strengthen that in them, and I strengthen something in me that um, doesn't allow me to transcend. As Roar says, in, in order to transcend, sure. you must include. And it's not just include people that are progressive, but include the, my evangelical family. That's what true transcendence is. Mm. And so there's always opportunities to prove that out in, in, in our own walk. And so... That was a part of that for me, and I still feel very strongly about that, not just as I step outside of evangelicalism and say uh, an evangelical church. And I, when I say that, I mean, am I attending an evangelical church right now? And uh, I'm not, and, um, and we haven't been per se. We've popped in and out of evangelical churches trying to look for something. And then when we got to Franklin in February of this year, 2019, my wife Googled progressive, and I'm like, what is that? And we found a church called Grace Point Church, um, and it's kind of known across the country for being inclusive of LGBTQ+. Sure. And so um, we had not had much of an experience with LGBTQ+, um, even though there are plenty of people um, that are LGBTQ in the entertainment industry, in the arts. Sure. Um, but I'd never had a political stance or a to it other than just love, um, but I knew that it was a boundary with our community, with the evangelical community. It was like, don't go there. Mm -hmm. um, don't promote it. Don't talk about it. And so in, earlier this year, we went to this church, and it was transformative for us. Mm. I walk into the building, and I see and experience a love that I had not experienced in three decades walking into an evangelical church. Mm. I'm going like, pay attention to this. We brought our kids who are 13 and 18, and they were felt a bit uncomfortable in the room because mm -hmm. they could see same-sex mm -hmm. you know, uh, families and partners there. And that they're like, well, we're kind of uncomfortable. And so it's kind of flipped because here's the parent right. <laughs> being the one that's a little um, trying to expand. And, uh, and it's not that we taught our kids to be anything different towards LGBTQ. It's just in the air of... Walking, being in the evangelical community. Right. Sure. And so we 
I said, look, kids, we're going to move towards love and we're going to move towards clarity. And right now I have a tremendous amount of clarity around this is where we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, we went in with uh, the home groups, you know, that were in when two home groups. I would go to a Wednesday night deconstruction meeting with people at a coffee shop and talk. And what I realized, Bob, out of that experience was uh, that when we create and hold space without judgment for other people, we grow and they mm-hmm. grow. And I had experienced this once in a while when I would travel to Europe and visit our European friends that are in film there, in film and distribution. And we would have these amazing conversations where nothing was off limits, mm. where you could ask any question. And there was no sense of judgment coming across the table for me holding that idea. And when we would hold that for each other, I felt like this growth happened. Well, February this year, that happened inside of mm-hmm. Grace Point Church where, and at these deconstruct meetings where we would talk and it was okay. No, I didn't feel any judgment in the room. And I just felt my, ex, my internal person expanding at this radical, fast rate. Mm. And it wasn't a radical where I'm moving away from Jesus. It was a radical moving to the root of Jesus, mm-hmm. bringing me home again to the divine. Mm. And so there's a vocabulary even you begin to adjust towards. Right. And some people were going like, well, are you new age? Are you like this? You know, because we were always talking. They want to put you into a box. They want to identify where right. I'm at. And I'm like, no, I'm just, I love God. I love Jesus. I've always felt like I've been a spiritual person, um, but I'm disenfranchised with the form of evangelicalism. And I think God is so much bigger and um, and that our divinity and his divinity, um, there's a meshing there. Uh, I had this image of the ocean and a wave. You know, where does the wave end and the ocean begin? And what is a wave made up of? It's made up of ocean. And so therefore, I as divine am made up of the divine, the creator of the universe. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I created the universe. The wave didn't create the ocean, but the ocean creates the wave. And so as I my perspective on who I am as a divine being has changed in 2019 where I finally landed on and accepted that I am divine. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus in John says, I'm in you, you're in me and I'm in the father and we are one. Mm -hmm. There are no degrees of one. There's just one. Right. And so I'm an expression of the divine and he lives in me Mm -hmm. and whether he, she, you know, it, I don't give a, name to that. I don't identify that, but um, it's it's my construct, what I grew up with, so I'll call God he. I have Mm -hmm. no problem with that. Uh, So the divine is in me, and and all I need, this is another daily uh, decision that I make, is today I decide that I am my greatest resource. Mm -hmm. That is heresy to my evangelical family. Well, well, riffing a little bit off of uh, William Paul Young, one of the most influential things that I've read from him and heard him say is that um, God, we are not tools in the hands of God for God to use like some sort of weird parent. If you were to ever say to your daughter or your son, I can't wait till you get old enough and mature enough so I can use you, I've got great plans for you. You'd be like, that parent is not only uh, dysfunctional, but, but borderline psychotic abusive. But we say those things and we sing those things about supposedly a loving being that, and yet, so what he says is, no, I don't believe that at all. I believe that God invites us to be co-creators with him. And 
that's what you're saying. And I, I think we've, I think most people have never heard of the phrase panentheism. You know, we've heard of pantheism and theism, and theism would be what you know most Christians would believe or evangelicals that God is separate from who I am. I actually am sinful and broken, and I need a God, something outside of myself, to save me. Okay, understood. Pantheism, which you probably have been accused of, says all is God and God is one, and the chair is God, and Bobby Downs is God, and the tree is God, and God is God. We're not saying either one of those. We're saying panentheism says that God is present and in and through all things, but simultaneously transcends those things. So, um, and I'm not speaking for you, but that's how I interpret what you're saying is you're not saying that I am the God that created everything. Uh, but you're saying that God is in and through me and I am one with him and he is simultaneously greater than I, but simultaneously I'm one with him at the same time. I never imagined Jesus walking this earth as though he could be harmed right. or as though he was a victim. Mm. And yet so many of my friends, family in the evangelical community do carry that burden. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm. And so when we come from the seat as though we are divine, then nothing can hurt, hurt us. Mm. Nothing can harm us. Now, we can experience pain. Mm-hmm. It was once said that uh, suffering is just defined as pain with meaning attached to it. Mm. And so I'm trying in my my the work that I'm doing, the internal work that I'm doing to eliminate self-suffering. Mm. And I first began to picture it as though reality is here, a marker in time, and then say a foot away over here, if I'm putting my hand on the table, this is where my expectations are. Everything between reality and my expectations is self-suffering. Mm. And so I begin to come back home to myself and align with accepting what is right now and live in the present moment where God lives. <clears throat> God doesn't live in the past or in the future. He only lives in the, this present moment. That's right. And our only imaginations of him, when we think about the future, we typically think of the future without God. This is why thinking about the future just generates anxiety. And the scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. So there's just no way that I can imagine then a thinking about God in a, a future setting. I, I bring it back to the present you know that I know that we're at sevens on the Enneagram. Right. And so that future tripping was a, a real challenge for me prior to 2019. And tw- in 2019, started doing a deep work mm. about getting my mind off of the future and bringing it back home to the present. And the only way I do that is through prayer and meditation, which is I do spend a good solid hour in meditation in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it's a, if I miss it, I'm okay. I don't shame myself for that. It's not a religious structure but I'm finding for me that when I come home to myself and I spend that time in, in meditation um, and connect with the divine here, uh, I'm walking in my highest truest self mm. and I then begin to operate from that highest truest self to do things in the world. So my doing comes from my being, not my being comes from my doing. Right. That's right. We're so, human beings, not human doings. That's exactly it. And it makes a difference when people ask me, what are you going to do in the second half of life? And I say, I have no idea. It's just unfolding and I'm mm. discovering it. But I can tell you this, it's going to come out of my purpose. Mm. And I was told once that your purpose gave birth to you, not the other way around. Mm. You don't give birth to your purpose. Mm-hmm. God knew you before you were formed. 
So therefore, your purpose was established before you were born. Mm-hmm. So you waking up to what your true purpose is and that alignment as you're walking in your true purpose is where your, your greatest joy is going to come from, your fulfillment. And also the neat thing about walking in alignment with your purpose is that it will also be resourced. Mm. The resources that are needed will come your way because what? God is abundant. Mm-hmm. He resources. Right. So there is now no hustling. Mm-hmm. And this is a big shift in me. From the first Especially as sevens, right? <laughs> yeah. Always trying to hustle to make the next deal happen or hustle right. to, to put food on the table, what have you. And I had to settle back into and trust one of my, my daily decisions is to honor the law of least effort. Mm-hmm. Some people, even my wife goes, whoa, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> You're not going to do anything? Like, that sounds lazy. Yeah. And I'm like, my problem over the first 50 years is not like not doing things. My problem is workaholicism. Right. My problem is do, my brain thinking all the time. Yeah. I need opportunity. This, opportunity. <laughs> Where are the opportunities? And so it's part superpower, but it's also part kryptonite. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that will do me in. Yes. It's the thing that disconnects me from myself and, the, and it disconnects me from my children, my wife. I think, I think the powerful, you know, I've been meditating as well, not, as, not an hour a day. I wish I'll work up to that. But the power of meditation in my mind is learning how to be present. See, when you're hustling all the time and when you're looking constantly at opportunities, and, and I'm not condemning that in people, what I'm saying is for me, and I think for you too, you begin to operate uh, a little bit like you're walking, like you're asleep, meaning you're operating in your body and your mind, but you're not fully present body, mind, heart, body, mind, soul. And what meditation does is it causes you to stop, it causes you to breathe, and it causes you to engage your full being and to be present. And somebody, uh, I had a guest on here a few episodes back, Biet Simkin, and um, she wrote a book called Don't Just Sit There. And it, it was about practical meditation practices and, and spirituality in your everyday work life and everyday just being, living in 2019. But one of the things, points she made, and, and she's not the originator of this, was that um, Every meaningful memory in your life that you can think back on five years, 10 years, 20 years comes when you were fully engaged and present in that moment. Whether it be good or bad, you were fully engaged. All of us can remember, those of us who are old enough, where we were and what we were doing when 9-11 happened. Um, And you can always, in those moments with your children, those moments in your marriage, those moments with your spouse or partner, whatever it may be, that's because you were fully engaged in that moment. And um, if you were to say, hey, Bob, what were you uh, five years ago on August the 4th, 2011? I have no idea. Why? Because I was walking around not being fully engaged. I was going through the motions of work and life. My body was active. My brain was active. But my heart and my soul were not all three engaged. And so that's what uh, I believe meditation does. It teaches, it practices you to be fully engaged and present. Would you so agree with that? It sets a baseline for you. Mm. And this is why doing, practicing meditation daily is important to me because throughout the day, I'll feel my monkey mind, the mm. ego part of my mind, mm-hmm. start asking questions like, what, what are you going to do? What, you know, 
finances or what's your function? What's your title going to be? What, how, you know, what's the narrative? And that monkey mind is you're, you are not your thoughts. Mm. Once you establish that, that you are not your thoughts, you are not your car, you are not your title, you know, you're not the house you live in. Um, and you get back to quieting that and gracefully quieting that. You know, we were taught in evangelicalism that that sinful nature, which is the monkey mm-hmm. mind, is something that you needed to like kick out, mm-hmm. right? And despise almost. And so I've become friends with that part of my mind, very um, gracious with it and, and tender towards it and, and kind. It's almost like a two-year-old. When mm-hmm. you ignore a two-year-old, they just get louder. Right. And when you're cruel to a two-year-old, they, they will scream. And so I think the part of that, the monkey mind, the, the active ego, we have to be kind to it and excuse it. It's like being at a, a party and there's uh, the honor, guest of honor at the party and you're, you know, you're schmoozing with people and talking with people. But when the guest of honor is on stage, you excuse the conversation and you say, excuse me, and then you, you're paying attention. And it's okay. Everybody's okay with you, you know, interrupting and say, we're going to pay attention up here. And that's what I do with my mind mm. as I excuse those thoughts and, and I say thank you. And when I become aware that the, the moment of awareness is the moment that your true highest self is mm. operating, mm. that your true highest self is awareness. Wow. So when you have awareness that monkey mind is going, mm-hmm. that is your true self. Mm-hmm. Now, you are not to then judge your thoughts as though they're oh, rats. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking? That is, that's also a practice that you have to get used to and, and recondition. Because as evangelical, I was taught to kind of curse the darkness and right. you know, not put up with it. Well, you come to the point where you realize that everything belongs, right? Every like, acceptance. Yeah. Everything belongs. And as a filmmaker, um, I find uh, the correlation that you can understand and I can understand having having worked in the business to some degree too, except from the marketing side, is um, to be able to see everything that happens in your life as third person, as if you're outside of yourself, Mm -hmm. as if you and I sitting here talking, um, there's a method of of looking down on yourself, looking at at us doing this conversation from different angles as if I'm making a film. It helps to bring awareness rather than me listening here, looking at you, talking to the microphone, and my mind wandering on 50 different things about what I got to get done today. I stop and say, oh, let me be present in this moment. What does it look like looking down, looking at over here behind us to the right, to the left, and just being aware of this moment of what is actually happening in our bodies and in this room and in this, this moment. Yeah. So important. And one of the daily parts of my meditative process, this may sound weird, but it's, it's really helpful, um, is I videotape myself, selfie video, me doing my daily decisions and my daily I am statements. Mm. So I'll just read a couple of those to you. Today, I decide um, uh, I'm, that my doing will come from my being. Mm. Today, I decide to honor and respect the season of life uh, to just be today, I decide rather than just do today, I decide to uh, transfer the seed of reference to my true self versus my small self. Today, I decide everything is for me. That's a massive shift when you decide that everything that comes at you in life 
is for you. Instead of having a scarcity slash victim mentality. Or that somebody's against you. Even the Bible says, if God is for you, who can be against you? No weapon formed against you can prosper. But yet we make reasons for why that can't be true. Right. So God is for me. Everything is for me. On September 11th of this year, I was in an auto accident, got rear-ended, my head hit the steering wheel, nearly knocked me out, blood, the whole nine yards. And my back was messed up, but what I didn't realize, and thankfully to your help, Bob, you got me into (laughs) Bipre and um, got me realizing uh, with the the brain scan that we did that I, I had a diminished brain capacity there. Now, I could have chosen in that moment to take on victim mentality, but I chose from that moment to choose to ask the question, how is this for me? Mm. Not in a way that would go, oh, you're trying to teach me a lesson, God, mm-hmm. which is typically in my evangelical community how it would be. God's just trying to teach you a lesson. Right. And then they throw out the Bible verse that all things work for good. Right. You know, and they're just like, ah. But I now take the all things work for good as meaning everything is for me. Right. And when everything is for you, it actually, maybe that thing that you were really wanting that didn't happen and now is blocked isn't just Satan doing it. It's actually God doing it to give you a sense of right. guidance, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Movement through. And yeah. even if Unfold. it's, a, even it's a, a car accident. So guess what happens after the car accident? I lose my regulator, my regulator and my governor. When you have a c- concussion, you, you can just find yourself crying in the middle of the day, mm. disassociated with the event. Wow. And that began to open up, oh, I've got emotions in there. Where are those coming from? <laughs> Hello, Enneagram 7. Yes. <laughs> Hello. And so I've been working with Jamal Javanji, who mm-hmm. you've had on the program. Mm-hmm. I read his book, Living for a Living, and it, it literally is another one of those transformative yeah, great books. Book. I was just reading that the other day. Just that whole, that whole mindset. And so he's been um, privately coaching me once a week. Mm. Uh, he's a coaching, life coaching practice, and he's helping me guide me through my meditation and guide me through these decisions and these, um, the reconditioning that's going on. So I wouldn't call it a, re- a deconstruction. I'm calling it a reconstruction mm-hmm. and a reinvention sure. of Bobby Downs, of myself. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful and positive about it. And um, I'm meeting with an amazing team uh, of physiologists that you recommended, right. Dr. Meta in Nashville, mm. one, the only physiologist in all of Nashville. It's a physiatrist. Sorry, physiatrist. Right. <laughs> I just learned this word, so it's, it's <laughs> hard to remember. Yes, physiatrist. And it's remarkable. We are sinking uh, aligned on using body, mind, and spirit to bring healing mm. from trauma, both brain trauma, physical trauma, and emotional trauma. Mm. See, it's trauma is trauma to the body. And there's a similar approach that you would take with, with both types of trauma. And I began to realize that every time I was reacting or feel myself become angry or annoyed at somebody, that was me, that was just coming from a seat of judgment. Mm. And it was coming from a place where there was old, unresolved pain in my life. And so you have to track that unresolved pain back to its source and walk through a process. And this is what Jamal Javanji is helping me me do to clear that old energy. And there's a book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. And so you'll notice as we get older that your joints ache more, your body aches more. A lot of that is just old emotions, old energy that's stored in your bones and it will make you sick. Yes. Right? Yeah. I have relatives and I've seen people that are going through that in the past and currently of, um, you know, you don't, 
you want to be careful how you judge because you do want to have have a everything belongs mentality but you see direct correlations and in my own life i've seen this i've seen how a um i will go to a doctor and say doc i can't get rid of this you know heartburn or or gastrointestinal issues i'm totally healthy in every other way but i can't get rid of this and he looks at you and says well everything's fine but your problem is stress your problem is every single bit of what you're telling me is stress. I'm like, no, but I want you to fix me. Pill. And he'll say, surgery. I can give you a pill, but that's not going to fix you. What's fixed you is you got to remove the stress and the anxiety. And then you're like, oh, so you're telling me I got to do the hard work. And so I resonate with what you're saying. Paul Young is fond of saying your secrets make you sick. Mm. And so giving voice to your trauma, mm. to your past what you have not even told yourself or told other people because we sometimes forget past traumas. We've buried them so deep, those secrets and your secrets will make you sick. They they're held up in your bones in your, in your muscles and the amyg, the amygdala in the brain. Mm -hmm. And um, every time, if you can remember your traumas, every time you relive that trauma in your mind, you're just re those same hormones are f rushing through your body, fight or flight hormones, cortisol. And so Body, a body, mind, spirit approach to healing has been um, so important for me in the last 12 months and specifically the last three months uh, after the auto accident. And to me, it's no different. The approach between physical trauma and, and mental trauma, uh, you got to approach it the same way. And I think we've done a great job as evangelicals addressing one of the three, which is the spiritual mm -hmm. side of it and kind of halfway, but we have ignored the mind and we've ignored, ignored the, the body. Right. I think the evangelical marketplace demographic is probably one of the most unhealthy physically yes. demographics in the United States. Yes. Yeah. And so what well, is, if you've got a, if you've got a foundation that says the body is not important, this world's not important because it's going to just burn up and go away and we're going to go to heaven and everything else is just evil and bad, um, which I don't find or see that in scripture at and it, all. And it begins to now call into question the idea of hell. And what happens is when we carry a worldview that hell exists, we begin to have this mentality, well, I'm working towards heaven. And you become so earthly minded, heavenly minded that you are no right. earthly good. And then you begin to go, well, this body doesn't matter because it's going to burn any, you know, everything's going to burn right. anyway. Right. And then the earth doesn't matter because that's going to burn anyway. And so you end up with, uh, a people group that are now overweight and sick physically, but then they ask and they for don't believe prayer. And, then, and don't believe science. Don't believe science, <laughs> but then ask for prayer for right. healing, right? So right. when they could have just removed the donut from their mouth, you know, 200 right. times, you know, yeah. chosen not to eat it. Yeah. That, that's a good segue uh, to, to start to wrap this up is what, what do you want to say to your evangelical friends, to your friends? Um, I don't want to label anyone, but what do you want them to know about Bobby Downs now? Because I know, you know, you were very public. You still, you know, you still engage and love everyone. But what do you want them to know? Those of them that are going, I don't know where he is on the spectrum these days. He's got rid of or sold or or whatever with, with ChristianCinema.com. I haven't heard from him. I see him pop up on social media. He's saying these things I don't understand. What do you want people to know about you? 
Yeah, that my identity is not a political stance and it's not a religious stance. My affinity is towards God and Jesus as a div- the divine. I think Jesus came to show us a new way of being human mm-hmm. and I'm all in, 100% in. And I haven't moved away from my faith. I've gone deeper into my faith. And I'm, I believe that if I want to change the world, I have to, it begins with changing me and the personal transformation. So I'm taking time to do the personal, deep, transformative work that involves um, healing past traumas, identifying those traumas, and not creating a, a blame framework for those traumas, but acceptance for that and a gratitude around it because all of that was for me. And it's helping me become my truest and highest self, the person that in the scripture says was beautifully and wonderfully made. Mm. And so I rest in the fact that I'm loved, um, that I, I am not only loved, but that I am loved. And I, I walk from that. Now, my vocabulary may change a little bit, and I'm trying to be super sensitive to my evangelical friends and family not to use a new vocabulary around them. Mm -hmm. Because that's often can happen because that's just identity. And so just like a language, if I were to go into another country, I'm not going to speak English expecting other people to to understand me, you know, that's kind of arrogant. So I walk into my different communities and I try to speak their language, not to to trick or hide something from them, but to be kind towards Mm. people. So I'm allowing kindness to, to Mm. really be the driving force behind my, uh, my, thoughts, my words, uh, my deeds, and it's not tied to a performance piece. And as a seven Enneagram, performance is, uh, is a trigger for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it's a reinvention for me. And I, I may, I'm, hope, I hopefully, I'm hopeful that I will be different a year from now than I am today. That's another thing I've mm. given up is this idea that I'm going to be consistent. <laughs> Right. You yeah. were, I was always told, yeah, you better be the same tomorrow. Yeah. Like you better, like, I better be able to trust you, you know, that you're going to be the same. Mm. And I'm like, no, I'm, I may be different next year. Yeah. I may have a different thought or a different view on this. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was scared to death of expressing where I was at because I've always been evolving. Sure. So you haven't seen me on social media giving, you know, like this is what I believe or, you know, I'm not, right. I'm not that person on social media. Because I've been afraid to, because I know that I'm my I'm, my view is going to change tomorrow. Sure. And um, even my politics, I've just noticed as a ref- reflection, I'll share with you, have moved. I voted for Donald Trump mm-hmm. the last election. Uh, I don't know what I'll do in the, the future because I'm not resolved on it. But I, um, I'm I'm at a place where I I'm thankful for Donald Trump because he helped in my disenfranchisement. Mm. I mean, that was so, I wouldn't be where I'm at today in my journey had Donald Trump not been president. I'm almost certain of that because it exposed certain things in my friends in the evangelical community where I was like, I'm not that. I'm not right. like, I'm, that's not me anymore. Right. They can stay there. I'm okay. I'm not going to resist or fight that, but I'm, I'm not there. Right. And so, and that's okay. And I'm going to allow other people to be them and I'm going to continue to to be me. But I'm not going to put up a fight with people because I don't think fighting is the solution to, mm-hmm. to change. Mm-hmm. I think changing the world through film is just a, a false narrative also. I think when we change and then our story changes, our narrative changes, and if that makes its way into film, I think that can be super impactful. Mm-hmm. But my goal isn't to first use film and then I'm going to take care of me later. Right. You know, 
I'm, I'm going to first work on me here. That's good. That's so good. Well, I want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for being um, honest about this because I know you risk a lot many times being honest, depending on, you know, what we do for a living, where we are in our life, what's going on in relationships. So thank you for, for being honest. Um, and thank you for showing me how to do this uh, in a healthy way because um, – when your construct changes and depending on how you got there, um, it can be traumatizing and, you know, our natures, our wiring, depending on who we are, um, can have a tendency to swing different ways and to really um, be angry about some of these things uh, and look at life as if time was wasted or look at situations or relationships in, in difficult ways. Um, but thank you for showing us how to do that in a kind way. And I think what I walk away from this conversation is you're always saying, going back to, I want to be kind to people and I want to respect their journey. So thanks for that. That's awesome. All right, man. Anything, any closing words? It is, can people, are, what are you working on these days? Can people get a hold of you? Can, can they see anything? Or you're just kind of taking some time off from public life? Yeah, I'm in a season of rest and healing and transition. And but you are online on social media and oh, other places, yeah. so if people can just look up Bobby Downs and they find can. you. And I'm even in, in the last year been looking into the hemp industry because of mm -hmm. agriculture background. Yeah, and also it's full circle to agriculture. It's restorative properties, and so um, I'm. I was just at a hemp expo here in Franklin mm -hmm. this last week. <laughs> sure, <laughs> where there it was a hemp auction, um, and then earlier this year I was at the World Ag Exposition in Tulare, California, where they had the first ever hemp. A gathering. And you're also playing in the uh, learning about the Oculus VR world? Oculus VR. I was at Oculus Connect in uh, San Jose earlier this year and last year. Um, very curious about how that's going to change um, uh, teleporting and telecommunications uh, and the work that we do remotely uh, because it, you'll just be talking right there with another person as though they're right in front of you, but they're, you know, 3,000 miles away. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of promise for that. And so I'm I'm an entrepreneur by I think that's part of me and and one of the things the work that I've done recently is coming home to my true purpose and I'll share that with you because it's a part of my truth and my purpose in this life is to connect people with other people and connect people with ideas mm. and when I do that I I envision myself traveling across the country and around the globe um, to do that work and to also uh, utilize public speaking as a part of that. And so I know that that's my purpose and it's revolved around body, mind, and spirit work, mm. um, whether that's healing from trauma, uh, both emotionally and physically. And so I haven't, I have that much a clarity around that. And it's taken me all of 2019 to, to, mm. to narrow it down to that specifically. I know that I was made to do that. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, exciting things ahead and we'll be, uh, we'll be watching Bobby Downs. So thanks for your time. Thanks, Bob.